Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on this edition of the 65465 podcast series, NACAFA, 65 years of our huddle includes everyone. And on this edition of the podcast, we're going to have a special guest in from the University of Ottawa Football Alumni Association, also known as the 1881. Joining us on today's podcast, Tom Casagrande, chairman of the uh, 1881, kind of talks a little bit about some of the, you know, some of the work that the 1881 does behind the scenes, familiarize you a little bit with, you know, what an uh, alumni association kind of does, and also talks about his playing days with the University of Ottawa. And of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't catch up with Tommy a little bit and uh, chat a little bit about his uh, start in football with the Bel Air Copeland Lions. That coming up right after the pause. Tom Castagrandi, thank you for yes. joining us, buddy. How are you, my man? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well, very, very well. Well, as I mentioned in the uh, the intro to our to our listeners, we got Tom Castagrandi with the U of uh, U of Ottawa Football Alumni Association, actually the chairman of the University of Ottawa Football Alumni Association, otherwise known as the 1881. And we're going to touch on that and some of your roles or your duties with that and, and how that uh, came to be. But um, most importantly, I kind of want to drift back like I do with everybody and talk about your football background, talk about your life with NACAFA and see how it kind of uh, evolved, evolved into what you were doing today. So real quick, Tommy, I know um, from the background, from talking to you, and I mean, as a disclaimer, I was teammates with Tommy for years. I've known Tommy mm-hmm. for, for longer than probably half the listeners have been alive type of thing. But um, like I said, I'll touch on it like I didn't know. So you started off with the Bel Air, uh, Bel Air Lions, correct? I did. Uh, I started out playing there. Um, my first foray into the game of tackle football, um, probably in, uh, geez, going back to 1980, 1981. I played two years of peewee football with the Bel Air Lions before I graduated and moved on to the Laurentian Lions, another great uh, football organization. Another great Lions program, and, and two of the Lions teams that I, I, I tell you, that anybody that's of our age will get this, that didn't play for Bel Air or didn't play for Laurentian, but the two programs that had no age limits, because I'm convinced today <laughs> when I was in Mosquito, we were playing Bel Air, and you had guys with full beards and mustaches who were jacked up, and then Laurentian, uh, the joke was all your, your, your kids were at the games cheering for you as you, <laughs> as you were kicking our butts. So, anyways, uh, that was the kind of inside joke. Always two powerhouses for people that are running around the um, the football scene in the '80s. Uh, it, it, it really it's it's hard to explain just what what powerhouses these two teams were. And so, before we touch on kind of your Bel Air experience, your Bel Air teammates, let's backtrack. Everybody knows you. You're uh, you're a multi-sport guy. I mean, you can sit down and talk sports with just about anybody. You can talk a whole slew slew of subjects when it comes to sports. You know, the major four, as we say, in North America, or at least in Canada, uh, you got them covered. But what kind of um, what, uh, hockey being king in this country, what kind mm-hmm. of got you started or piqued your interest in, in football? Well, it, it's really funny that you asked that because it, it kind of stemmed from an experience I had playing the game of hockey. You know, I, I that love their sports. You know, my dad uh, was the quintessential son of uh, European immigrants that came to this country looking for a better life. And, you know, his, his parents were from Italy and, um, you know, they grew up on Preston street. And to this day, my dad still lives there with my mom. And uh, he kind of got involved in sports in his neighborhood and, and really took a passion for that just through the kids that he grew up with. But 
Uh, on my mom's side, my mom's last name being Boucher, uh, they had a very big background in both football and hockey in the city. Um, going back generations, I've had um, four great uncles who all played the NHL together at the same time. Uh, my grandfather was a very well-known football figure in the city of Ottawa as both um, an official and sports reporter, refereed in the CFL for many years um, after his time in uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force in World War II in Korea. His name was uh, Ray Boucher. And he was a big influence on my football background. But how I really fell in love with football was, um, you know, my brother came home one year and he, he had signed up to play Wee football a year ahead of me. And I went down and started to watch because um, I knew some other, other kids on the team that were practicing and playing. They always used to say, why don't you come out and play? Why don't you come out and play? So I think it was in the eighth grade where I went down and played um, my first season. And um, I actually had kind of um, a bit of a bad experience with hockey that year because hockey at the time was my number one sport. and you know, it, it was rep hockey. It was, you know, a little bit of politics were involved. And I started to play football and football became almost like a haven for me because it was so much more fun. It was all about just going out and playing with your buddies. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, the Lions were just an absolute dominant program at the time, uh, both when, when I was playing with Bel Air and then as we moved on to Laurentian, it was a real feeder system for that. But, um, you know, if we weren't if we weren't in the championship or winning it, it was a disappointing season. And I think winning had a lot to do with it. But it was also the coaches more than anything and the parents that just made that game so much fun. And it was a real family atmosphere that uh, made me fall in love with the game. And then when, obviously when, when you start to play, it, it's such an amazing game. I just I just fell in love with it from the from the get go. It's funny you say that. I, I said this and people who have been listening have heard my story before. So I won't get into it in great depth. But I will say this is, is, is what you're saying echoes my sentiments and, and a lot of guys I talk to. I remember because it's kind of that later sport we get into, especially in this country. Now it's different. Now, you know, now we have tight. Mm-hmm. But I mean, for, for guys, and it's not that long ago, we're talking around 2000 was when they finally kind of introduced tight programs. For a lot of us, remember, you know, if you wanted to play football, Mosquito was your first option. And that went up to 12. So, I mean, you, if you wanted to play when you were nine or 10, this is what you were dealing with. And as you know, um, just the natural development of a nine-year-old compared to 11-year-old is, is night and day. So, I mean, it was just, it was one of these things that you got to get involved in, but just kind of the structured fun. Like, it was like no other sport I'd played. And I remember, I still to this day remember the first game of organized football I played and, and remember pondering it for hours afterwards as like a, a 10 or 11-year-old because it was just like, wow, that was just, you know, it left that impression. It's funny the way you describe it because, you're not the only one, and it seems like a common theme. Now, I wanted to touch on one quick quick thing you brought up, and then we'll kind of get back to you, uh, your Bel Air days and whatnot. But you, you brought up an interesting theme, Tommy, because you were talking about your dad, who was the son of, a, of, of European immigrants. So your dad was first-generation Canadian. I'm, I'm correct in that? I understood that. Yes. Yeah, and, and one of the yes. themes, and, it, and one of the things I, I really like, it makes me smile because I've heard from people where their, their parents or their grandparents – were immigrants, but from all over the place. Like I'm talking all, we're mm-hmm. not talking just Europe. We're not talking just Africa. We're not talking Asia. We're not talking. So we're talking. And the one commonality was this love of sport that the immigrant was very, and embracing of, of, of football in a lot of ways. Like I was talking to, um, to a, an ex teammate of yours and a good friend of yours. Um, and, and it's a podcast that's up now is, is Darren Joseph, one of the best running backs to play mm. in the nation's capital. And I mean, it all started with his mom's with a with basically a mother's dream and his mom's love of the Rough Riders. And she was an immigrant from St. Lucia, got to Canada in yep. the sixties and immediately fell in love with the Rough Riders. 
um, t- talking to uh, current uh, Ottawa Red Black at Torre Latenzio, ET, um, same deal. His dad just had a, had a passion for the game, had a passion for it. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Now, did you, now I'll, I'll ask you a little bit about your community, your family and friends when I'm touching on that. Did you see this as a trend, like um, that was something that uh, wasn't kind of isolated to your family, if you understand what I'm asking? Like, did you see it throughout the community where first, second generation Canadians, they really seem to embrace in sport, but specifically football? Oh, for sure. Um, and, you know, you talk about going back to that that era when, when you know, whether it was our parents or grandparents, I mean, uh, growing up in the city of Ottawa, where it really was the golden years of the CFL, where, you know, every game would be sold out. Um, you know, the Rough Riders were the big game in town. And, it, it, you know, it's the great thing about sport. It's the way that it brings people together from all different walks of life and all different communities. And, you know, when you, especially when you grow up in the city, um, you know, everybody knows where, you know, Bel Air Lions played out of and, and where the Laurentian Lions were. You know, we had kids from all different backgrounds, different sides of the tracks, but we all came together because of our love of sports and, you know, football being the dominant one in that area. Um, you know, we we all showed up to play together and, you know, you, it just transcended over time as well, because you, know, you talk about our time at the University of Ottawa. Uh, we had so many kids from so many different walks of life, as you mentioned, just different places and first, second generation kids. It didn't matter who you were, black, white, French, English, everything in between. Once you walked into that room, you were a family and that, that common bond was football. And, and we all loved the game and we all had a passion for it. And that's why we all got involved. No, and I, and I want to touch a little bit more on that with you, because, I mean, one of the things I, I'm, I'm a big fan of different point of view, points of view. And I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're disagreeing points of views, but just somebody a different point of view. And I've had a few guys on from, um, you know, a few of the players in the past. And we've talked about kind of that locker room. I don't want to call it culture because locker room culture has a negative connotation. And I want the, I, I want to kind of parlay the positive of it, but that locker room environment, mm-hmm. how it's, you know, socially speaking, I always said football locker rooms or sports locker rooms in general are usually a couple of steps ahead of society when it comes to, um, you know, no issues, doubt. Uh, the, the um, you know, racial, uh, just the, the whole harmony, if you will. And I mean, I've talked to a couple of guys of different backgrounds, uh, visible minorities, and, 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 and I want to kind of get your take and expand on what you're saying. Cause I mean, again, you're coming, sure. you're coming in as, uh, as, as somebody with the uh, Western European background, Italian background type of thing. And I mean, the experience isn't necessarily isolated to say uh, somebody of color or somebody of a different language or, or this type of thing. How did you find, like, I mean, did it, I don't want to say open your eyes to anything, but uh, as a youth, did you find yourself all of a sudden thrust in this environment where, Hey, you know what? I'm I'm starting to meet different cultures because of this. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, it, like I said earlier, sports it, it definitely brings people together from all different walks of life. I mean, I see it today when I'm coaching my daughter. Uh, we live in Toronto now, and and I, I coach our hockey team, the Scarborough Sharks, and we got girls on this. She plays in all girls league, and you know, we got girls from different walks of background. And again, it's just a way of bringing people together. And I. You know, it's, it's really sad what we see in the world today, uh, especially south of the border with all the divide and all the hatred that's going on. And, you know, I've always said this. You want to learn about diversity. You want to learn about uh, respect and tolerance and people coming together. Play football because there's not another sport out there that brings that many people together, uh, as I said earlier, from different walks of life. And, you know, when you walk into that locker room, we're, we're a family and we're all football players and we're all, you know, with a common goal 
uh, you know, a common passion for our love of the game. And we're all going to strive and, and do our best to support each other and, and work hard together. And it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, you know, where your family's from. Once you walk in that room, we're just one family. And that's the greatest thing about sports, in my opinion, honestly, like the camaraderie, the friendships that you develop. Yeah, we love the game. Yeah, we have a passion for it. And, you know, we got a common goal of trying to be the best we can be and, and go after that championship. But, um, you know, I can't imagine my life without the friends that I've made uh, by playing sports. And in particular, the game of football uh, has blessed me with so many great friends and from all different walks of life. And you honestly, you know, you don't really think about it. You talk about the locker room culture and, you know, I know it's different than, than when we played, but, you know, there was, it was so much fun to be a part of a group like that because, you know, you made fun of each other. You made fun of yourselves. You laughed at each other. You laughed at yourselves. And uh, nobody was, like, super offended by it because you're just a family. And, you know, you, you welcomed it. You embraced it. And everybody just had a love for one another. And th that, to me, is just the greatest thing about sports was the, the friendship and the camaraderie that came with it. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I, I like to sum it up. And I've already told people how long we've known each other. But I, I look at it. You and I were teammates for two years, friends for over 30. So, I mean, that, mm -hmm. that, that kind of puts it in perspective, you know, when you look at a Exactly. When you look at a 30-year friendship or a 30-year time period, and you realize that we were actually only teammates for two of those years. But then I look at that core group of guys that I'm friends still keep in touch with. And, you know, none of us were, more, were teammates for more than three, four years maximum. Um, but, again, friends for 25, 30, 35 years. Now, quick, uh, I just want to drift off to see if my memory's okay here. Um, mm -hmm. E. Campbell Stadium was that what was that what it was called? R. D. Campbell Stadium, and it's funny, R. D. And the the funny thing about it was that um, it wasn't officially on the campus of Laurentian High School. It just happened to be right next door, yeah. so it was a city-owned property that was separate from the school. But you know, it you know, essentially, it was our home field, and uh, you know, just a powerhouse program that I was really fortunate to be a part of with the best in my opinion, the best two coaches high school football's ever seen uh, with Mr. Ron Graham and Mr. Bob Wills. I mean, the, the city of Ottawa high school football trophy is actually named after those two individuals. So yeah, no, it was, it was great to be uh, able to play there. Uh, it's funny. I just, I just remember the name of the stadium from, uh, since it was like, you know, you were going like, I thought it was JD. Cause I actually, I think JD was a guy on much music. So Artie Campbell was, uh, <laughs> you know, you went there for a loss. That was uh that was basically what happened. We went there to, to yeah. uh, you know, the likes of a Dean Noel or a Carl DeCipio just run for 300. Oh, yeah. But anyways, now we're, we're kind of, uh, I, I digress in that. So backing up to that, now, after your um, your Bel Air days, what position did you play with Bel Air? Oh, it's so funny. Um, my first year at Bel Air, um, I ended up playing tight end, and I weighed about 100 pounds soaking wet. And my second season, uh, because I had a very late birthday uh, in November, um, you know, I qualified for a, another year of city football before I started to play junior at Laurentian. So I went back for uh, my second year of Pee Wee football. And again, I just so happy I did it with so much fun. And I weighed 104 pounds soaking wet at the official weigh-in because it was a weight-restricted league then. Mm -hmm. I ended up playing offensive guard. And <laughs> it was so funny because – that's probably the smallest guard in football history. Like, honestly, in grade nine at Laurentian, then um, there were some big guys at that school, some big tough, it was a big, tough school. And I was the smallest kid in the school in grade nine and weighing 104 pounds at the weigh-in for the uh, 
the preseason um, evaluation. And so it was just so funny, but played uh, on the offensive line, I'll tell you that. <laughs> no, you know, I think we all, uh, at some point, all of us uh, get our start on our own linemen. And it's funny because I always say, and I'm that guy that uh, – I'm, I'm a huge proponent of the O-line, so I always like to say that most of us are just failed O-linemen where um, there's a certain <laughs> of skill and, and needed to play that. But anyways, again, I kind of drop off there. So after your, your Bel Air days, you, you went on to play mm-hmm. Laurentian. And I mean, anybody that was around in the city at the time, they, they know the Laurentian. I mean, I, I, I'm not even an alum. I didn't particularly like playing against Laurentian. Obviously, we lost. Um, so it was like – but I still remember I was – really bummed um when Laurentian you know when the school ceased to be type of thing um mm-hmm. for, for no other reason than from a selfish point of view I kind of look at it from a kind of take an American viewpoint of it and it's like if you know if if one of these schools like from Friday Night Lights with uh what was it um Odessa Perriman if one of these schools um or Permian rather if they they just folded or Dallas Carter just not didn't exist I mean this was legitimately a football icon or a football legend for a good decade in the city of ottawa so oh it really was and 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 a big reason why it was so successful is because of the feeder system that the beller lions were i mean we had our coaches at beller lions at both the mosquito and peewee level there was no um bantam or midget team at the time we just had the mosquito team and the peewee team all the coaches were ex-laurentian lions and they all learned from those two coaches i mentioned earlier um ron graham and bob wills so they took the Laurentian system to Bel Air. By the time we got to Laurentian, we already knew what kind of offense or defense we were going to run. We knew how we were going to be coached. We knew what the expectations were. And it was an absolute football powerhouse. And I'm not kidding when I say to you that if we didn't, at the very least, make the city championship every year, there was something wrong. And, and like people looked at each other. Teachers looked at each other, looked at us. Principals I mean, Ross Beck, our principal at the time, was a big football guy who had a lot of history with football in the city of Ottawa, and had a big role in it as well. Uh, so that, you know, it was just one unbelievable feeder system. So I would say about, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the players from Bel Air went on to Laurentian. We had some other kids that went to different schools, but the bulk of us all went to Laurentian. And they were like the guys that we looked up to. They were our idols. We heard about them growing up. You know, some of them were older brothers or older cousins. And you know, they were just like gods to us. And we just, you know, we wore it as a badge of honor to be a lion, whether it was with Bella or Laurentian. And it was just, an, I don't think there was any other program in the city that had that much success that developed that many players from a minor program into a high school. And in those days, high school football was everything. It was so much better than the city league uh, in terms of like, you know, when you compare it to midget football for kids, like there were a number of high schools that didn't have teams. So those kids went to play, um, you know, city ball. But when I was playing, um, you know, high school football was king. And Laurentian was by far the most dominant program for, geez, like a 30, 35, 40-year run. It was unbelievable how dominant they were and how many titles they win, they, they, they won and how many championships they were in. So, it was, you know, we were fortunate to grow up where we did and, um, and, you know, experience the culture that we did with that game. And it was, um, you know, some of the greatest memories I'll ever have. I just look back on with uh, so much, um, you know, pride and, and fondness. Now, and one of the things, and, and, and I kind of mentioned about the school shutting, but one of the reasons it shut, and I think it was one of the things that makes the Laurentian run so much more impressive, was um, it, it closed due to lack of enrollment. You guys were never a huge, mm-hmm. popular, hugely populated school. I mean, no. we're talking about a school that, uh, 
You know, I don't think even in your heyday, you guys didn't have a thousand students, or if you did, it was, you know, just barely touching on that. Well, I'll tell you, when, when I graduated, I think when I first started in grade nine, there was a thousand and it diminished every single year. And by yeah. my last year of high school, it was down to 500 students. Um, we went nine and oh, leading up to the championship game. We, we unfortunately lost in a very tight game in poor weather conditions, but I'm not going to give an excuse to that. That's some good <laughs> friends on that Confederation team that they ended up playing at Ottawa U with. But uh, it really should have been an undefeated season for us. Uh, we went on to go undefeated and win the rugby championship as well, went to Opsa for that. And we had like three Olympic athletes. So, I mean, you know, we had guys like Glenn Wright Gilbert, uh, Ken LeBlanc, just to name a couple. That were just like it was. It was just that area that we grow up in at that time. We had an unbelievable amount of athletes uh, per population. That was a big part of the culture at Laurentian. It was our identity was sports, and you know a lot of people you know looked down upon Laurentian because you know we weren't known as the best academic school, uh, even though we produced some great scholars. Um, like I said earlier, we had some kids that grew up in tough environments from different parts of the city. Um, so it was a school that was always talked down upon, but you know, no one ever messed with us on or off the field. I'll tell you that. And, uh, there's a lot of pride. It was a really tight knit school. And, you know, even a couple of years ago, I was home in Ottawa for a weekend and there happened to be like a sort of a mini reunion from our era. And a lot of people turned out and it was a great night and there was still so much pride that takes place. And you're right. It was, you know, it was a crying shame that the school had to close because, you know, it had such a great run and, um, you know, my daughter calls it Walmart High because there's a Walmart <laughs> where the school used to be. Now. And uh, but the, the the fun thing is that uh, there's there's still a little chunk of the football field if you drive by it that's that's still there. So you know, it does put a smile on my face if I'm at home and I and I drive by and I see it. But I mean, that's that's just the way it went. You know, um, like other cities, the demographics change in different areas and the burbs explode and the, the more schools develop. You know, outside the city, but. Um, yeah, no, it was a great run and it was a great school to be a part of. No, definitely. And I mean, I, I, I really like kind of getting able to chat, uh, the chance to chat with some guys like yourself and some of the other guys we have, because I mean, if you didn't live it, I, I, I there's just no way of explaining football in the nation's capital. Like, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Here, don't get me wrong. Um, we are producing some of the best athletes and best football players that, that that have ever come out of the city of Ottawa and the resources, like I was having this conversation with Darren Joseph, the resources that are available to young football players today are great and they're growing. Um, So, I mean, if you're a young player right now, I I think there's no better, there's, there's never been a better time to to kind of uh, perfect your craft than now. Yeah. As a player slash fan growing up, um, you, you talked about it, and I'm going to backtrack just a bit. I remember those Eastern Conference Championship games when I was a kid, and I'd be on pins and needles on Wednesday. And, and I mean, the game was on Sunday in Montreal, and we could never seem to get over that Montreal hump. This was when the Rough Riders were good, when I was mm-hmm. like, very young. And and it was just after their 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 Grey Cup run, or their Grey Cup win with, with, um, with Gabriel and, and whatnot. And I just remember some of these games against the, 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 the vaunted Alouettes, like, A, it was bigger to me than the NFL. Like, there was nothing bigger in my life at that time than the, than the CFL Eastern Division Championship game. Mm-hmm. And, and I was, like, I remember, I think, back-to-back years in the, in the late 70s they went. And, and I was a little kid, but gutted, like gutted. Like, I mean, just gutted for two days that it was over. And, I mean, there was just – it was just a different, like, I mean, give me an example. And you'll probably remember this. Um, 
but there was an old uh, uh, what was this Calcutt Ernie Calcutt yep the old uh, broadcast guy and this is how big it was in the city I remember uh, Jerry Organ um, yeah the kicker yeah, lining up from something like 53 yards. And, and Calcutt saying on air, if he makes this, I'm going to do a handstand on Spark Street. <laughs> and sure enough, Oregon made the kick. Calcutt, true to his words, I think, I'm sure it was Calcutt, went and did the handstand on Spark But you had hundreds of people showing up on Spark Street because they had heard the, 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 uh, the, the, the uh, radio cast of the game. They'd listened to it. I mean, it was just, it was that kind of um, oh, part of it- the like I was saying earlier, you know, it was the golden years of the league and it was the 100%. big game in town. It, there was no uh, NHL hockey in Ottawa at the time. Uh, it, it was everything. And you're right. Like you'd be worked up all week. Just so excited to see that. Now, I was very fortunate compared to most kids, because as I mentioned earlier, my grandfather, uh, Ray Boucher, who was a longtime CFL official and later became a football reporter in Canada. Um, you know, he would take me to the games and, you know, he would walk me pregame on the field. I'm talking like 12 years old, 11 years old, 10 years old. And this is just an absolute thrill meeting these, these heroes, these idols of mine, you know, getting ready to play a game. And he'd take me up to the press box. I'd sit beside him in the game. And it was just like an incredible experience for a kid growing up in that town. But you're right. I mean, um, you know, I, I'll even take you back to 1981, um, which I think, again, was my first year of playing football. When um, Pat Stokwa, the receiver for the Ottawa Roughriders, had that famous 105-yard touchdown catch against Hamilton in the Eastern Final that took Ottawa to the Grey Cup, which was played in, in Montreal against the powerhouse Edmonton Eskimos, who had won like five Grey Cups in a row. And that's when Ottawa had brought back from the University of Oklahoma uh, J.C. Watts. And he was just Julius Caesar. And he was just such an exciting football player at the time because – you know, we had heard of him in Oklahoma running the wishbone, and he'd never seen a quarterback come up here to be able to run and throw like that. And I was I was really lucky that the night before the game, um, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, my parents' friends <coughs> offered me a ticket to go to the game in Montreal. And I'm like 12, <coughs> 12, 13 years old, and I'm freaking out watching. Like, I can't believe I'm going to get to go to the Grey Cup. It was just like such a monumental moment in my life. And uh, I found out about it the night before the game, and I got to go with a bunch of other kids. I was the youngest kid there. They put us on a bus with no parents while they stayed home and had a party in Ottawa to watch the game. <laughs> and there was like 10 of us that went down there into you know, the big city of Montreal. You get off on a bus, and you're 12, 13 years of age, and you see this going on. And it's your, it's your team in the national championship, the Grey Cup. And, and then we all know what kind of game that turned out to be where Ottawa came out to this 20 to one lead. There were like two touchdown underdogs and, you know, Edmonton had everybody They had Warren moon. They had, you know, Dan Kepley. They had like, you, you name it, their whole roster, Neil Lumsden, the whole roster was just filled with potential future hall of famers. And Ottawa had no business being in the game when they're up 20 to one. And then Edmonton comes back in the second half. And there was that phantom double pass interference call against Tony Gabriel that still to this day has never been called again. And, you I, know, I got to sealed the deal for Ottawa, but okay. I have to interrupt yeah. you for one second. So I, I think we've done about uh, this is the number eight or nine in our series of podcasts, maybe number ten. I lost track, but so we've done this podcast. This is now the second or third time in just the limited podcast that uh, the double pass interference has brought up, oh. and it's funny where you and I think a lot alike. If you go back and you listen to my conversation with Matt Sakaris. I asked Matthew, who's been involved with sports, that you know Matt well. 
Oh, for sure. His media yeah. presence. And I said, have you ever in your life since that day seen a double pass interference call? And he, no, no. I, 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 <laughs> no. Know, like all bets are off. You, you knock me over pass interference, everything else. But yeah, I don't know. I still remember that. I still waited some, you know, almost 40 years later for another uh, double pass interference call. Well, it's funny too. Like uh, just a few years ago, when the Red Blacks won the Grey Cup, uh, like as you know, I live in Toronto now, and um, the game was played here, and we beat Calgary, who again was a big favorite, another Alberta team, uh, a big favorite over Ottawa. But you know, Henry Burris decided to have the game of his life, and um, you know, I was able to uh, able to bring my parents down and come to the game with them, and it was literally 40 years since Ottawa had won a, a great cup and to be able to share that moment with them was great because my mom had a lot of involvement with the, with the rough riders back in her day when she was leading the halftime shows as the head major red with the, with the, with the, with the rough riders. And, you know, it was just, you know, back then, you know, everybody loved the rough riders. And so growing up as a kid, we really grew up in a pretty special time, um, you know, where the CFL was king and, and football was so big. And it's great to see this resurgence. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, the, the city right now of Ottawa is producing just some tremendous talent. Um, you know, we're having a hard time getting them to Ottawa U because so many of them are going south of the border. But, uh, you know, we're still getting our fair share. But it's, uh, it's incredible what's going on in that city. And I think, and I really do believe that the history of football in Ottawa has played a huge, huge role in all that development. Well, it's funny, you bring it up two things in the history, and, and again, it depends on the, because uh, again, and I'll allude back to my conversation with Sikaris. Um, we're talking, and he brought up that catch, and, and then again, it shows I'm getting old, but I don't, I think it was Ellingson who had the catch that vaulted them into the, uh, into their first Grey Cup a few years back. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, Matt was telling me, you know, one of the most. Oh, the miracle on Bank yeah. Street. And I'm like, and yeah. then I brought up, I'm like, well, you know, for some of a certain age, we remember something just as famous and even more unlikely was in the end. Oh, yeah. I believe Stokoe was 14, if I'm not mistaken. Number 14. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about Pat is uh, when I ended up going to Ottawa U, my first year, he was our receiver coach. And that's when I was playing. And, you know, I had switched from quarterback to receiver that year. And uh, it was just so funny because Pat's such a great guy. And I, I, I knew him for a few years before that. But he's always been such a great guy. And that play... Like that's that's his you know his trademark play. It's a big part of his legacy, and he's a great guy. He's done great things in the community, and um, you know he's got a great you know a, a great piece of history in Ottawa football. So to have him be my receiver coach was a pretty special uh, time for me as well because it's a guy you grew up idolizing. You'll never forget that one massive play, and the next thing you know, he's coaching us. That was a pretty cool thing to experience as well. I remember when being a kid in in Canada and him coming on like career day or something, like it was a career day type thing. And I mean, legitimately, I had trouble speaking just because it was like, uh, you're Pat Stoke. <laughs> and I, if I'm not mistaken, I do, uh, I'm pretty sure he had like a daughter that was much younger or whatever. But um, but yeah, like it was just like I was in awe. This is Pat Stoke. This just kind of gives you the idea of what football was like back then. Ironically enough, sure. um, I'm sure you'll love this as a. Uh, as uh, as the chairman of the uh, U of Ottawa football alumni, and at least not football, you know uh, Pat's son is a, a star. I don't know if he still is, if he's graduated, but as of last year, oh Sean, yeah, yeah. he was a great basketball player, yeah, and, and football as well. But I think um, I think basketball was a little bit more his sport than football. Not that he wasn't a good football player, but he was a better basketball player, I believe. I've seen him play; he's he's pretty good. He made the he made. I've yeah. never seen him play football, so I can't say he made the right choice, but. Uh, 
but just based on yeah. what I saw him playing basketball, I think he made a pretty good choice. Well, we'll kind of uh, get out of uh, memory lane now, and I'll leave you with this thought because it's and again, I mm-hmm. know we're kind of flogging the dead horse, but I, I just can't emphasize enough to people just the the kind of climate in the city. Like I use a perfect example. I remember to this day my favorite memory with my with my uh, with my father. My entire life was back in I want to say '79. And I would have been like in grade one at the time and him taking me down to just him and I going down to bank street, getting, uh, going down to see the rough riders play the hated Elouettes at the time. Um, I don't know how it happened, but we seemed to get tickets in the same area in a group area with a bunch of Elouettes fans who had taken a fan bus. Cause these things were common in the CFL with Ottawa and, and uh, Montreal games. And, and I just remember being surrounded. That's my memory being surrounded by a bunch of guys cheering for the L's, smoking cigarettes and just this atmosphere <laughs> and the chant, go L's go and me being all, oh my God, like, you know, and, um, and ironically enough, I still remember it was a 29, 29 tie. Uh, mm-hmm. and I remember, you know, I have memories, not just the game, but walking down the sounds of bank street, walking down the canal afterwards, um, to go get our car. But just again, like 40 plus years later, these things stick out and it just, it's, it's a testament to what football. And again, it's not that it's not, I mean, society's changed. It's changed drastically. So, I mean, you're, I, I don't think any league's the same as it's going to be in, nor will it be the same in 20 years. But, um, but as, as far as like the fabric of the community, I mean, I don't think mm-hmm. they can truly understand what the Rough Riders and what Rough Riders players meant. Now, kind of fast forward to, um, to, to, to modern day for some of our listeners so we don't just turn this into the, the Wayne and Tommy nostalgic hour. Um, <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, we won't get right to the present. We'll kind of lead into what got you here. So after your career with uh, playing the CAFA with the uh, Lions and then playing high school with the Laurentian Lions, you went on to play, I believe it was a year of junior with the Sooners? I did. I went and played one year with the Ottawa Sooners, and then that's when I started at the University of Ottawa shortly thereafter. Now, talk about your uh, University of Ottawa career. What was uh, what were your expectations going in, and kind of uh, how did they meet your expectations? Well, you know, I um, I played a year at the Sooners when I was, I was playing quarterback. Cause my last year of high school, I was a quarterback, and um, I decided um, when I went to Ottawa that they had a pretty solid quarterback in the name of Cam Baird. He's, he was uh, one of the top quarterbacks in the country. And uh, I decided to make a switch because growing up, uh, as I mentioned, with a one-year exception of playing an offensive line, I was, I was usually a quarterback or receiver. So I was pretty flexible. I could play either position. And so when I went to Ottawa U, you know, I talked to Coach uh, Jim Daly at the time and just said, you know, look, I want to come here. Very excited to be here. Um, probably thinking about changing positions. And, uh, you know, he was all supportive of that. And, uh, you know, we had a great team that year. And so the expectations for that team was Vanier Cup bound because – uh, we were veteran-laden. We had a lot of star players in that team. I mean, we had, I think, four of the major award nominees for our conference, two of which who won national championship awards. Chris Banton won Rookie of the Year. Chris Jaskis won uh, Lyman of the Year. Uh, Weber, Gord Weber was up for Defensive Player of the Year. And then, as I mentioned, Cam uh, Baird was up for uh, the head Creighton. So, you know, when I went in there my first year, um, I was there to learn a new position and back up a uh, – an all-star fifth-year player by the name of Dave Waterhouse, who just came back from being drafted with the Ottawa Rough Riders and uh, was in training camp with them. And he came back for his fifth year. So really my expectations were that we were going to be very successful and compete for a national championship. And at the time I, I would get in and play a little bit at receiver, learn the system and be ready for the following year. Uh, you know, unfortunately that season, you know, even though we had a great team and we won a lot of games, uh, we only lost to one team that year. 
and it was both in the regular season and in the uh, conference final against Queens University, who had a really solid team as well. You know, we had a couple of really tough battles against them, but unfortunately just couldn't get across the hump. But then, um, yeah, over the next four years of playing at Ottawa U, uh, it was just a tremendous experience for me. Um, you know, making the friends more than anything, what I did was the best part about it. But we had some great competitive teams over the years. And, uh, you know, probably not as much success as we would have hoped or thought we probably should have, but we were still very, very competitive as a, as a team. And so that made it even more enjoyable. Oh, very cool. Very cool. So after that, you find yourself, okay, all of a sudden you come out, you're, uh, we'll say, uh, kind of one of those, and, and I don't like to use the line, the, the term borderline, but in this case, it applies. Mm-hmm. I mean, normally we mm-hmm. think borderline, we think, uh, again, negative. But I mean, for a guy that's contemplated a full college career, been a starter at university, and then is a, and I'm doing the quotation, a borderline pro, I think that's a hell of an accomplishment for anybody. So you're coming out, and I mean, coming out of uh, of um, out of CIAU or, or what it was at the time, and then soon to mm-hmm. be CIS and now U Sport. You come out, you're a borderline prospect. So I mean, yeah, you, you have some some looks, some people interested. You obviously have the size, the skill, but I mean, everybody knows CFL is is it tends to be a numbers game. So I mean, you kind exactly. of real, realize that's not ah, it's interesting for people that haven't had a chance. Listen to the Darren Joseph conversation. Um, he really sums it up nicely in a very positive way not in a negative way but he sums it up very positively just the um his his first experience with learning what what it meant what the ratio meant and as a as a rookie and as a second year guy who he was actually competing with whereas unlike you know the nfl nhl mlb any of these sports you're competing for that roster spot at that position yeah cfl there's an extra layer but anyways now i, I again i digress so you kind of it, it doesn't pan out for you but then you get a really interesting opportunity. Do you want to talk to a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Yeah. No, as you mentioned, you know, when I was, when I was graduating, you know, I had talked to a couple of teams in the CFL. I talked to Ottawa, I talked to Winnipeg, uh, never got drafted, didn't get an invite to camp, was invited to go to a couple of free agent camps. But at that time, I mean, they would, they would bring in like, you know, a few hundred players and they'd sign like one. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, it was around that time when I had an opportunity uh, to go play in Europe. And um, a, a former teammate of mine from, from Ottawa U, Justin Malloy, uh, was, uh, was a head coach over for a team that was based in France in a city no more for its 24-hour car race, Le Mans, uh, than it was for American football. And, you know, even to this day, people don't understand or realize how much American football has played in Europe and how much it's developed. But Justin, um, in the league that I was playing in in France, it was all part of what's known as the European Federation of American Football. So a number of different countries, whether it's Italy, Germany, you know, Spain, England, France, all have their own domestic leagues, leagues, and then it culminates with a European Championship. And there's there's some great football that's being played over there. They've got different levels of leagues, and um, you know, I had an opportunity to go over there and experience the game in a, in a different environment, different setting than I could imagine. And um, I was really a player coach. And so I helped uh, design and run the offense with Justin. And we had a couple other uh, Canadians over there that actually we, we played against at Carleton and a couple of became a couple of really good friends. And it was just an unbelievable way to go see Europe and go live in a different country, experience a different culture and to continue to play the game I love and, and to develop it over there and, and help coach it in a small way. And it was just an absolutely incredible experience. Made some great friends. When you know, after the season was over, I was able to travel Europe and 
just explore and actually go back to the motherland, go back to Italy, meet relatives that I like, I knew I had, but I'd never seen before. So overall, it was just, a, it was an unbelievable experience. And one, looking back on it, I, you know, I probably wish I would have gone back for another year or two. Like I, like I know the way that you experienced it, but um, uh, it was just an incredible experience overall. I'm, I'm very thankful that I did do that. Now, and something I, when, I, when I'm coaching at the university level, I, I can't stress enough to young guys or even guys in their last year when they're looking at it, say some of these undersized guys that, that you know, just the, uh, again, I want to call it the numbers game, just you don't fit a specific uh, cookie cutter model or cookie cutter. Oh, sure. Size and so you're just not going to get that opportunity. I tell them, follow your dreams, chase after it. You only get to be young once. You only get to do this once. Yep. By all means, but there's got to be a point when you realize, okay. Um, and again, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm I'm being a realist here. That yeah, this just might not come to fruition, um, regardless of how much I work or how much I may even deserve this. But I tell them, you know, when you exhaust that avenue, and by all means, go for it. Don't let anybody tell you what you can or cannot do. You you know, regardless of the position or what. But once you've exhausted that, I tell them, I'm like, you know, I've said to numerous players, you go over. You're going to have a bunch of friends that are graduating, working jobs. They probably don't. They probably hate just sure. scrounge together enough money so that they can get a uh, a rail pass and kind of backpack, living in hostels and you know, um, living off of a few dollars a day, which is again a great experience. I'd always recommend it for anybody graduating. But on the other hand, you go over, you, you get to play a game you love. You have somebody paying you a salary. They pay your voyage over there. You're 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 being paid to go to different French towns to play a game, mm-hmm. um, and specific and more specifically for guys like you and 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 Justin who I know and others that are there. I, trust me when I tell you this. I've spent the last two years kind of returning to Europe and coaching there, and, and I mean the level and the development of the game is 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 gone through the roof i mean like uh, guys like yourself are truly the pioneers of something that's grown into a uh yeah a, a significant presence over there well to the, to the point where uh, you're starting to see um you know some of these kids come over not just play at the university level but the professional level you, you know I, I really do believe that the commission of the cfl randy ambrosi has done a great job of partnering with some of these leagues all over the world whether it's you know europe japan um, Mexico, what have you, um, you know, great athletes are great athletes and they're all over the place. You know, like, you, you know, a country like France has 75 million people. It's a big country and they're going to produce some tremendous athletes. Um, it's just that they just need to be given the opportunity to learn this new game and, and take part and develop it. And I, I still follow on social media, the team that I played for the, in, in Le Mans and, you know, they've got a real structure for an organization right now. And, you know, it's never going to be as big as, as soccer is in Europe because we all know how dominant that sport is. But, you know, they, they do structure it and run it the same way that you see these other professional yeah. leagues, whether it's, whether it's soccer, whether it's hockey, whether it's basketball. Um, they, there is a huge presence of North American football over in Europe, and it's producing some tremendous athletes. And, um, you know, this might segue into, you know, the next topic, what, what I'm doing with, with the alumni, but, um, you know, with our new, our new old head coach, Marcel Belfoy being back into the mix, um, you know, one of the areas that we're going to target uh, is Europe um, and abroad, because we know that there, there, there has been a couple of Europeans love late that have come over and played U sports football who have dominated. And because of just their sheer athleticism, they're getting better, better coaching over there because, of sort of like the shared coaching experiences that they're getting from whether it's Canada or the U S and um, you know, it, it's definitely an area of interest of ours to, to try and tap into, because like I said, there's just such a wealth of talent over there. 
No, and and again, this isn't like a, a veiled shot at uh, you. You'll get exactly what I'm saying. I mean, even that, and it's great that uh, Coach Belfoy's taking that on. I'd even argue that might be late to the party um, in terms of the they, – they just were about a decade into it now where guys are identifying some of the talent. I mean, on this year's opening day roster in the NFL, there were 12, 10 ex-Euros um, that yeah. grew up and played in, in either Germany, Denmark – um, like you said, and football's that one sport where I always say, <clears throat> when you look at football, football's probably, and again, not to, it, it's kind of like that pure athleticism sport where you can just be a pure athlete and they can find a spot. And it doesn't, and, and by no means, I don't want baseball players or hockey players or rugby calling me up and telling me, I don't know, we're just, you're just as athletic. But point is, is with the other sports, if you can't dribble a basketball, you can be the world's greatest athlete. You can't play basketball. No. Uh, you know, you could be, you know, you could be the world's greatest athlete. If you're six foot five, you're not going to be a power forward in the NBA. Um, if you can't skate with a certain high degree of skill, these are all skill sets. Uh, yep. Whereas football, you take that linebacker. If you have the right mentality, you, you see it all the time. Kids that have ne- never played football or played one year, but are four, five, forties. I mean, a mutual acquaintance and friend of ours, Andy Malumba perfect example oh, just a, a monster beast. of an athlete yeah. who hadn't really played football till he got to the Sejep level but just a monster like a well, great you know, individual that that's the great thing about the game of football because you know there's so many different levels of uh of positions you know whether it's on the line you know linebackers running backs receivers dbs kickers punters what have you return specialists if you're an athlete, there's going to be a spot that you can play. You can find out. You know, you say if you can't catch, that's okay, but you can run. Go play defense. Go cover a guy and knock a ball down. You know, if you if you if you don't have a great set of hands on, you can go play defense. Or, you know, if you just want to run through somebody or just go chase the quarterback, go be a stand-up man or outside linebacker. You've got good athleticism that way. But, you know, there's you know there obviously are certain positions like the one that you excelled at a quarterback where. You know, you do need a specific skill set, but for the most part, you'll be able to find a spot. If you're an athlete and you're you're committed to to becoming all you can be and train as hard as you can, you're going to be able to get on the field and contribute in some way. No, and it's funny because it's also a topic. When we talk about uh, locker rooms bearing and whatnot, it's one of the things I loved about football, too, is forget about, you know, the obvious things, ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, Mm -hmm. uh, language whatever the case there's a million different things you you have blonde hair he has brown hair he has red there's a million different things doesn't matter yeah it doesn't and the one thing that's cool about football where you don't really get that is if you look at every other sport i mean you're gonna have a generalized group of athletes granted your your forwards in basketball are gonna be the tall ones bad but even the guards it's it's rare you're rare gonna have a guard under six three people forget steph curry you know is still a six foot two six foot three inch human being exactly um but with football, not only do you have that that dynamic locker room in terms of background, you also have just in terms of athletic skill sets and body types and whatnot and mentalities. I mean, you're looking at you know a, a guy we played with, but is typical at that position. You're you're five foot eight, uh, bundle of fast twitch muscles like a Chris Banton in the same locker room with a six foot six inch. Uh, 290 pound offensive tackle. I mean, yep. they're just, their skill sets are so different, but you're on the team working together. I, I think that's one of the fascinating things too. But you kind of gave me a perfect segue. So I kind of want to touch on that a little bit more mm-hmm. now before we wind things up. And that's just, uh, 
a little bit about your uh, your work with the uh, with the University of Ottawa. What uh, what kind of got you started in that position? And uh, let me know some of the stuff you guys are doing. Yeah, no, it's been a real passion project for me, and it's probably going on, geez, close to ten years. But um, the way it started, and this is going to sound really kind of funny, was uh, purely for selfish reasons. Um, I, I heard, you know, when I you know, living down here in, in Toronto, I'm not in the city like full time back in Ottawa, but I'm up there a lot. And I obviously still maintain ties with so many great people. And I got family up there. But when I heard Carlton got their team back and I heard Panda was going to be back. Uh, and when I got back to TD place, what we used to know as Lansdowne Park, uh, I knew it was going to be big again. And because we all grew up, you know, going to the Panda games, like well before I even started to play football and, uh, we always knew what the event was back in those days in the seventies and eighties when it was just a free for all and both schools would have great turnouts and it was such a monumental event. And, you know, I was looking back on it thinking, geez, I want to play in this one day. But, you know, after my career was well over and I heard about the game coming back uh, and because I have a sports marketing background, I knew some people at over at OSAG and I called them up and I just said, Hey, I was wanting to know if I could rent a suite for the game because I wanted to get all my friends together in one place. And that's what I meant when I said, reasons because every time I come home for a weekend I would call the usual suspects uh, of friends uh, you know present company included when if I never got to see all my buddies together at one time and I thought what a great way to have a reunion and and get people brought back together so I think the first year when when we did that um, that was the the Hail Mary which I don't want to go into too much detail when Nate Bahar um, caught that winning touchdown last play of the game and we're sitting there and there's 15,000 people there and I'm freaking out and I'm all upset about this. And, you know, my best friend, Chris Johnson, who I played with, he looks at me and says, this is the best thing that could have happened to this. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know? And he's like, no, no, dude, this it's, it's back. It's on, you know, look at this place. All the fans had ran into the field and it was crazy. He said, this place will sell out next year. And I was like, I know it will. And I said, we got to get involved and make this thing a bigger event. And there was two people from sports services that were at the game that said, Hey, can we come by and talk to you? And I said, sure. And they were working in the athletic department. And I said to them, I said, you know, where was your pregame event? Where's the postgame? Where are we going after? Like, there's no official alumni engagement here. I said, this could be something absolutely massive. And I said, we can do something with this and we can work with this and make it bigger and better. And then at the time, the athletic director um, the following year came up to me and called me up and, and said, it was Mark Scheiber. And he said, um, we want to start uh, an alumni association specifically for football. And I'd like you to be involved. And I said, I'd be more than happy to be involved. And so immediately the first thing that we started to do was, was the term that he used was called friend raising as opposed to fundraising, because before you can go after money from alumni, you got to get the, the alumni involved. And, you know, so that was we, we put together a committee of guys from different eras. And the first thing we did was just reach out to all our old teammates to let them know what we were doing. And that this was the start of something that we was hoping it was going to develop into something bigger, which it has. And it's evolved over the last 10 years or so. Um, and because it was it was gaining so much momentum and so much popularity that we decided we had to rebrand it and we had to come up with its own name because it's, you know, it's quite a mouthful to say University of Ottawa Alumni Football Association. Like, you know, we got to come up with a brand and that's maybe, you know, maybe the marketing background of me, but it was just, we had to come up with something that created an identity for us. And um, I, we hired some people from outside the organization who said, you know, you know, your, your football, your football history goes back to 1881. So why not, you know, this is a great way to, to brand yourself and let people know what the, the history of the program is and how long it's been around. 
And so it, it's took on its, its own sort of name. And now when people talk about 1881, they know exactly that it's the University of Ottawa Football Alumni Association. So uh, we've got some great leaders in place from different eras. You know, the, the, the chairman, the original chairman that we had, Neil Lumsden, who uh, actually I mentioned earlier, former Eskimo, but arguably our greatest player ever at the University of Ottawa was in the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, who had an outstanding career as an athlete and sports administrator. Uh, he was our first chairman, and he really helped get the, the, the structure in place. And, um, you know, now we're working on so many different great initiatives. Panda, obviously, is the big event that we get involved where we bring back so many alumni to the game now. Uh, we've got a great event the night before uh, Panda every year and post-game. We've developed a great relationship with the people down over at um, uh, Industrial Pizzeria at Lansdale. They've been good to us to give us the venue. Uh, it's just been a tremendous experience, and we're getting people coming in from all over North America for that event, which is amazing. Uh, very much like uh, the annual touchdown dinner, which is really driven by alumni, uh, and it's a great way to raise more money for the program. Um, and we've been, it's a great way to honor some of the, the past greats from, from the program as well, whether it's a, you know, a player or a coach or a different, a different contributor. And then we've also started up recently the Eve LeClerc Memorial Golf Tournament named in honor of Eve LeClerc, a former player, a part of the, of the 1975 National Championship team uh, that raises money for academic scholarships. So, uh, and we're doing other things as well. Some of the great things that we've done is you know, obviously raising money is, is, is the biggest thing of what we do because we understand that university sports in Canada, um, you know, they don't get the money uh, generated that they do south of the border. So any way that we can do that to help with things such as whether it's coaching equipment or training camp meals for the kids, um, you know, we work with the coach hand in hand to, to determine, you know, how the money's best spent and how much money do we need to go after to go help that program? Because, you know, we all have a common goal of being the best program in the country. And you know, as I said earlier, we're, we're very excited about the new direction, bringing Marcel back into the mix. And uh, we know he's going to put together the best coaching staff and the best program in Canada. And we're going to be going after, you know, the Westerns, the Lavals, and the Calgarys. And uh, we want to be the envy of the country. And so we're going to do our part uh, to support the program, get us to that Vanier Cup level. Nice. Very cool stuff. And, uh, you know, you kind of answered my next in terms of uh, some of the stuff that go now. I have a couple more questions for you before we let you go. If you have a couple minutes here. Absolutely. Um, first question for you, going back to your NACAF and kind of tying everything together here. Um, hey, first off, again, once again, really appreciate the time kind of going back down memory lane with the CAFA, talking about some of the stuff we're doing now, the Ottawa football scene. So my first question for you is this. Actually, I've got kind of three questions. My first question is this. Off the top of your head, your favorite Nakafa memory, your favorite Bel Air Lion memory. Oh, geez. Um, I would honestly probably say my very first one. Um, back when I played, and again, I'm going to sound like the old guy here, but uh, to start the season every year, they called it the on review, where every team in the city at each age group went down to Lansdowne Park and we all got to play one quarter of football. And for the first time I ever put on a football uniform to, you know, an official uniform after practicing for weeks to walk into Lansdowne Park where, you know, you, you grew up going and you had all these idols that you watch play uh, to be able to put the pads on and go line up and play at Lansdowne that very first time you put a uniform on. That was a pretty special moment. Yeah, and, and I mean, that just by you describing it, and I mean, I, I wasn't fortunate enough to ever experience that. It was gone by the time I started. Mm -hmm. um, I think you're 
kind of hooked. Oh, like, that that sealed the deal. That's, that's it. I mean, there, there's my goal. Yeah, you know, yeah. You have, no, you have no chance. All right, so let's expand it now. Going back all across football, your favorite football uh, memory. Hey, Tommy, we lost you there for a second. So, uh, welcome back. You can hear me okay? Thank you. Yep, we're on to question number two. Yeah, so question number two was, uh, again, we just talked about your favorite Nacaf memory. What's your favorite football memory across the board? Oh, geez. Um, There's been so many. uh, It's really hard to narrow down, but actual football moment. Well, there was a time in 1992 uh, playing in the Pandy game where – uh, we had a quarterback who threw me a pretty good pass one time to win the game with just under two minutes to play. I think, um, he, under, I think, he, I think he underthrew you, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you stepped up and made a hell of a throw with a guy in your face, so that, that, that can be excused. But, um, yeah, no, Panda 92 was a great moment to be able to play in your hometown. And, you know, at the time we were living two blocks from the from the, from Lansdowne and, and to be able to go out there and, um, you know, create a, a small moment in time where uh, your name will go down the history books was pretty special. Oh, cool. And last but not least, my third question for you is um, just a guy who's been a, a kind of like around it, stepped away from it, back in it, now a uh, major role with the uh, 1881. Um, how, how have you, what have you seen in terms of the differences of, of uh, or the, we'll say differences slash evolution of football, particularly in the nation's capital since your playing days to now when you're kind of on the other side of the fence, um, you know, helping run a, a university program? Well, you know, it's funny, like I said earlier in the call, Ottawa's always had a great history and tradition uh, of producing some tremendous, tremendous football players uh, uh, born and raised. But, you know, what we're seeing right now come out, the, the talent level is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, th- these kids are training 12 months of the year. Uh, they're really focused and specializing in the game. And, the you know, the level of athletes has just improved dramatically, but also the level of coaching. Uh, you're starting to see a lot of the coaches at the community level, whether it's, you know, minor football in the CAFA, uh, high school, junior university, that it's, is has improved tremendously. And so just the overall level of talent and coaching is is at an all-time high right now. It's really exciting to see. No, I, you know what? I echo those sentiments. Well, Tommy, I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to jump on with us today. Um, I wish you continued success with the uh, the 1881 both uh, obviously just in general and for, for selfish reasons well. And uh, again, hopefully we'll uh, get another chance to catch up with you on our uh, 65 for 65 series. Thanks again, Tom. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. And we thank you, everybody out there for listening today. And make sure you check in for our next podcast on the NACAFA 65 years of our huddle includes everyone.